Let us turn in the scriptures to the book of Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64, the verse 1. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we look not for, thou camest down. The mountains flow down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways, behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father, we are the clay. And thou art potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praised thee is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Amen. And we know that God will add his own blessing to the reading of his inspired and infallible word. We're now coming to the, the seventh, the last revival lesson from the book of Isaiah. And there are other revival lessons, of course, but we have looked at these seven. And between Ezekiel and Isaiah, we have been spending some time on this great subject of revival. And what a cry for revival this is. In the verse 1 of Isaiah 64. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow at thy presence. We're going to think about the passion for revival this evening. One cannot help but sense the urgency, the desperate need felt by Isaiah as he cried out from the depths of his heart, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. This was a cry born of, of real need, but it was also a cry where the prophet 
believed in what God could do. The mountains will flow at his presence. We have heard of revival. We have feasted upon what God has done in the past. We are the children of revival because I have no doubt that we are here because God has sent revival in the past. And if God had never sent revival in the past, there would be no work here in the present. So we know all of this. But we have never experienced revival. And I just wonder, can we be content with that? Can we be content to carry on to the end of our days, to the end of our service for God in this world, without seeing revival? At the very least, can we be content to carry on without having a real burden for revival, without having a passion for revival? We think of the numbers of our fellow countrymen and women are going out into eternity without Christ. We think of the, the world's billions, so many lost, going to eternity every day. Surely we must have a desire for God to work. But yet where is the desire? Where is the passion? Where is the burden? We feel the encroaching darkness. Our nation is turning away from God. Our nation is tolerating evil and legislating evil, terrible depravity. We know all about it. And yet, the church loses to lie, indolent and careless. We are like those that the prophet mourned over when he talked about the people that were content to be at ease in Zion. We are content with mediocrity. We just want to keep going. And so many people say that. And I hear it from church to church and from place to place. Difficult times, hard times. We're not getting people in. We're not seeing souls saved. It's just keeping the foot in the door to keep the thing going. Taking the citadels of Satan by storm isn't even on the agenda today. There are some who are simply worldly living for the moment. For material prosperity or for the pleasures of this present world. There are Christians like that. And there are others who believe the day of revival is past and we must simply, as the church, stutter on as a tiny remnant towards the second coming. Have we not become like Samson? The Philistines have put out our eyes. The vision is gone. We grind in the prison house of God's second best. The evangelical church today is losing her youth. And that's a complaint from place to place. The old who have held on faithfully for generations, the prayer warriors are being promoted to glory. And when they're gone, they're not being replaced. We are presiding over the decay of evangelical religion in the 21st century without a burden for that trend to be reversed. And how is the trend to be reversed? Only by revival, by nothing else but revival. Revival is the need of the hour. And this is a work that must begin in the heart of the church. I was thinking about the seven churches in Asia Minor and how 
in many respects, some of those churches at least, have so much to teach us about our need in the present. We think of Ephesus, the fundamentalist church of Asia Minor, who were so zealous for pure doctrine, but yet they lost their first love. And they were in danger, the candlestick being removed. I think of Sardis, the failed church of Asia Minor. They had a name that they could live out, but they were dead. The power of the Spirit was gone. You think of Samson again. When the Philistines came upon him, Samson roused himself. He looked the same man, but he wasn't the same man. The Spirit had departed. The secret of his power was gone as the Philistines came upon him. He tried to fight. He didn't even know the Spirit of God had left him. Like Philadelphia, the church of the open door, we must hold fast what we have. Seize our opportunities before the Lord comes and we lose the crown. And then we can think of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. We have been materially blessed. The Western world is materially blessed. You think of the, the poverty, the deprivation that many people in this world have and what they experience. You think of Christians in other lands, other nations. They don't have the things that we have, the comforts that we have. But yet, are we not like Laodicea? We have so many of this world's luxuries and good things. But the Lord's outside the door, knocking to get in. I use these examples not to criticize us particularly or to make a statement upon the state of our denomination, but I think it's generally true of the evangelical church in Britain in these days in which we live. We're in a dire need of revival. We can't overstate that enough desperate need of revival. We are facing real challenges today as the Church of Christ. And to deny that we're not facing real challenges, to deny that we ought to be carrying on the way we're carrying on is just to, to live out a lie. Oh, we can talk about empty seats and prayer meetings. It's true. We can talk of empty seats and prayer meetings before the services. It's true. There isn't a vision. There's not a passion. I don't often talk about these things because I often feel in my own heart that people come out because they're told to come out. Well, that's not the right reason. God needs to work in their hearts. And unless God works in all of our hearts, the work will not go forward. To say that we are not in need of revival is to be like poor old blind Samson. But even for Samson, there was hope. At the very last, he would give his life. He would give his life for the cause of Israel. He would overcome the Philistines. He would die doing that very thing. And God would be glorified as he would slay more in his death than in his life. It was a final act of full surrender. And that final act of full surrender would define Samson's ministry. Thank God Samson wasn't defined by Delilah. He wasn't defined by his capitulation. He was defined by that great act when God came upon him at the very last. How are we going to be defined by our acceptance of mediocrity as being the norm? Or are we willing to cry out 
as Samson did. One last time. Desperate need for the power of God. And what a cry this is. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow at thy presence. Just three simple things we're going to think about here. First of all, let's think about the burden. Isaiah had an obvious burden for his people. With prophetic insight, he looked into a future generation. God's Spirit enabled him to see the Babylonian hordes descending upon the holy city. God's Spirit enabled him to see Solomon's beautiful temple being burnt with fire. And even the Jews today in Israel, they stand at the wailing wall, the last remnants of that old temple, mourning what they once had, but now they have lost. You look at verse 11. Our beautiful, our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praised thee is burned with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. But Isaiah was painfully aware with that prophetic insight, the very reason why this would happen. The seeds for this disaster were being sown even in his generation. The seeds for disaster are sown in one generation and another generation reaps them. May God forgive us for sowing seeds that a future generation will reap. Isaiah could see it coming. It was sin that brought about this dreadful judgment. You look at this chapter and we can, can see how Isaiah describes the, the sin that was bringing God's judgment upon them. Look at verse 5, the second part of the verse. Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned. And those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away, and there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thy face, to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. That's a very challenging verse, you know. The judgment came, there was nobody praying. But why was there nobody praying? Why? Because God had hid himself from them. One of the signs of God's judgment is when God doesn't put the need for prayer in the hearts of God's people. If we don't have a passion for revival, that's a judgment in itself. Because the passion can only come from God. And that's a frightful thing. And that's a fearful thing. Isaiah knew that God had dealt harshly but justly. But he had a spirit of realistic humility. And this only served to sharpen the burden and intensify the, the passion. He knew that the destruction of Jerusalem would be God's work. And Israel would deserve that. So whenever he cried out, oh, that 
thou wouldest rend the heavens. Yes, there was a burden because of the fire that would come upon the land. There was a burden because of the enemy that would overwhelm the land. There was a burden because of the sin that had taken place. But there also was a burden because this is what we deserve. This is what we deserve. This is what God will visit upon us, and he is quite right in doing this. And therefore, there's this spirit of absolute humility, the laying of a soul bare before God. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. Thou wouldest come down. See all this that's befalling our nation today? It's what we deserve. It's what we deserve. We deserve much more. And so we need that burden to cast ourselves upon God as he would rend the heavens and he would come down. We need that kind of a vision for God. But then there's the belief. What did Isaiah believe? He believed that the mountains could and would be melted by the awesome presence of God. He believed that. We are facing enormous mountains today. We're facing great obstacles. A mountain speaks of an obstacle. There are the mountains of atheism. There are the mountains of secularism. There's the LGBT lobby. There's their depraved philosophy. There's abortion. The list is endless. There are the mountains represented by the religions of this world. There are billions of followers. There are the mountains of sin. There's the addiction, the addiction to pleasure, to shallow interest, to immorality. The mountains. Mountains are towering around us. But are the biggest mountains not in our own hearts, in our own spirits, our own apathy, our own carnality, our idolatry? There are many things that have taken the hearts of God's people today. You remember in the days of David, Absalom won their hearts. He stole the hearts of the people. The people were so shallow, they were so fickle. They went after Absalom. David had to flee for his life. The king was driven out. Is the church of Christ not like that today? We've gone after Absalom. And Christ, like as he was at Laodicea, is saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And of course, in the days of David, there came that time when the king returned. The king returned. And we need to bring back the king. And we need to put the king in his rightful place. In our hearts. In our souls. William Cowper wrote the words, The dearest idol I have known, Whate'er that idol be, Help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. So shall my walk be close with God, Come and serene my frame, So purer light shall mark the road That leads me to the Lamb. Only the Lord can break down the mountains. Only the Lord can melt the mountains of sin and unbelief. Mountains that, like parasites, have sucked the precious spiritual lifeblood out of our souls. We must believe that the king can return to his temple again. That he will cleanse it. You remember what the Lord did when he came to Jerusalem? He cleansed the temple. He drove out the money changers. He overturned the tables. He dealt with the temple. It was a dramatic thing. We need the Lord to come because whenever God comes to the church in revival, that's what happens. Things are put to right. Only he can do. Let us pray the mountains would be melted. Let's pray that our hearts would become like wax. The Lord would come down. 
and do his work as only he can do. We can't organize this kind of thing. We can't manipulate this kind of thing. Only the Lord can do it. Revival is his work. Charles Wesley wrote, Give me the faith which can remove and sink the mountain to a plain. Give me the childlike praying love which longs to build thy house again. Thy love let it my heart o'erpower and all my simple soul devour. Finally, let's think about the blessing. Isaiah believed God. He anticipated a day of coming blessing. He anticipated the restoration of Israel. He anticipated that time when God's people would return with singing. And we thought about that in a previous week. He anticipated answers to prayer that would be unimaginable in his glory. He believed in what God could do. You look there at verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the year, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, but thou hast prepared for him that waiteth for him. If we wait upon God and cry unto God and plead with God, there are blessings in store that we couldn't even imagine. That's what we are being taught here. That's the blessing. The story of the Fulton Street Revival in 1857 in New York City remains one of the most thrilling examples of what God can do. I was looking this up again and I came across a very brief article by a man called Steve Petit from Bob Jones University. And he tells the story beautifully. I'm going to read it to you. It's an amazing story. It was exactly noon on Wednesday, September the 23rd, 1857, at the old North Dutch Reformed Church in Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan. For three months, Jeremiah Lanfear had gone into every business shop and boarding house, inviting people to pray on that particular Wednesday. But as he entered the church at noon on September the 23rd, no one was there. Most of the churches in the heart of New York City had moved to the suburbs when their affluent members had left the city. In fact, the North Dutch Church had relocated out of the inner city too, but decided to leave a mission work in their old building in Lower Manhattan. This section of New York City teemed with businesses, immigrants and laborers, and Lanfear, who was a businessman himself, was tasked with reaching them for Christ. It was 12.10, and still no one had come to pray. The California gold rush of 1848 had turned men from God to riches, but by 1857, economic times were hard. Businesses were closing, 30,000 men sat idle in New York City. Slavery was ripping the country apart. The threat of the Civil War was looming. There was desperation in the air. Lanfear had decided upon a prayer meeting because nothing else he tried was bringing people into the church. He was discouraged, but prayer was his solace. If it encouraged his heart to fellowship with God, maybe others would feel similarly. Lanfear said, In prayer... We leave the business of time for that of eternity. It was 1220, 
and still no one had come. Jeremiah Lanfear, with no theological training but a deep commitment to the will of God, sat down in the empty church building and began praying. Finally, at 12.30, five men walked in to pray. There was no fanaticism. There was no hysteria. From a human perspective, nothing extraordinary was happening, and certainly there was no idea that this would begin one of the greatest revival movements in American history. It was just six men quietly, earnestly seeking their God on behalf of their city. The next Wednesday, 14 people attended the prayer meeting. Within six months, there were anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000 men and women out of a population of 800,000 praying at different 20 different prayer meetings daily, not weekly, daily, around New York City. For a period of time, it is estimated that 10,000 people were being converted in New York City each week. The prayer meeting united people across socio-economic lines at a time when little was uniting Americans. It was a group acknowledging their dependence on God and simply communing with Him. The format was simple. Individuals prayed aloud for unsafe family members or co-workers by name. Hymns were sung, testimonies were given, but prayer was the main focus. Because New York City was a business hub, <coughs> as it is today, merchants and businessmen came from all over the country to do business in the great city and were swept away by the tide of revival they found there. A visiting merchant from Albany was selecting goods when the noon hour came. He requested that the wholesaler work through the noon hour so he could return to Albany by the evening riverboat. But the response from the wholesaler was, No, I can't do that. I have something to attend that is of more importance than the selling of goods. I must attend the noonday prayer meeting. It will close, <coughs> it will close at one o'clock and I will then fill out your order. They both attended the meeting and the visiting merchant was converted. When he returned to Albany, he immediately started a noonday prayer meeting in that city. Prayer meetings spread up the East Coast to New Haven, Connecticut, Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C. They also spread to the newly developing West, Chicago, St. Louis, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Detroit, Minneapolis, and Omaha, and as far away as Ireland, because this was the inspiration for the 1859 revival. Headlines in newspapers across the country carried the news of revival. Ice on the Mohawk River, broken for baptisms. Firemen's meeting attracts 2,000. The New York Times in an editorial dated March the 20th, 1858, stated the following. The great wave of religious excitement which is now sweeping over this nation is one of the most remarkable movements since the Reformation. It is most impressive to think that over this great land, tens and fifties of thousands of men and women are asking themselves at this time in a simple, serious way the greatest question that can ever come before the human mind, what shall we do to be saved from sin? Within 18 months of the first prayer meeting in the old Dutch Reformed Church, it is estimated that one million souls across the United States have come to Christ. So why is this story so relevant to us today? What's the lesson? The Lord used one dedicated man who believed his God was capable of more than he could ask or think to usher millions into the kingdom of heaven. Jeremiah Lanfear was not a man of exceptional talent. He looks very much like the unsung, maybe underappreciated, 
church worker in every church, but he believed in a big God. How long would you or I have waited in that empty church? How big do we believe our God to be? May the Lord bless these thoughts to your heart and soul tonight. Let's get before the Lord for prayer. Let's seek his face together. Do please pray for revival tonight. We have this gospel mission coming. The need is great. The need in our own little community is great. Souls without a saviour. There's work to do. But we need to pray. Let's pray that God will work. Let's pray for a vision. Let's pray that we will have a, a burden for prayer. That it will not be said of us, there is none that seeketh after God. May God put the burden in our hearts tonight.